great worship and as our uh, Cactus Campus joins us on our Northridge Campus and then our chapel next door and our venue across the way, uh, as well as those of you watching online, I hope you've had a, a time of preparation and worship as well, because we're going to uh, dive in uh, to a new series today that was mentioned earlier uh, called God Behind the Scenes. It's a look at the Old Testament book of Esther. Now, let me make a couple of comments on it before I pray. Uh, the first comment is, if you've been around Scottsdale Bible Church for a long time, like more than a decade, you might say, didn't you preach on this book once before? And the answer is yes. I, I spoke on this this book, when I first came here, uh, I came here 12 years ago, I spoke on this book exactly 11 years ago in 2008, and so you're saying, why are you doing it again for two reasons? First one is obvious, you have forgotten everything I said. <laughs> about the book of Esther, I promise you, because I could not remember what I said 11 years ago. And, but even more importantly is that when I went away in February on a short <clears throat> study break, I, uh, I was drawn to the book of Esther. I, I actually was thinking about writing a book on it. This book has always drawn me. You'll hear why today and in the coming weeks. So I spent this year almost two weeks immersed in this book, restudying it. And I feel like the Lord gave me a very fresh perspective seeing it at a different angle, uh, a lot of new stuff, if you will, and I feel very led to address this topic once again. It's a very unique book in the Bible. You'll hear why as we go along today. I mean, very, very unique and yet a very profound book. So I simply feel led to preach on it once again. And I think you're going to be very glad uh, that we're going to take this almost three-month journey. Uh, the book is 10 chapters. We're going to spend 11 weeks in it, but it will not feel laborious. It's going to feel very life-giving. Now, to help you with this series, we have uh, provided in our bookstore and then at the other campuses and venues uh, these Esther journals. And you're wondering, why do I need to get a journal? They're like three bucks, so they're not expensive. You'll want to consider getting this, and I will tell you why. Uh, Esther is a very long book in the Bible. And so what we're not going to do each week is read the entire chapter because it would take a long time. But you're going to hear today that, that we're going to tell you the story of Esther, which is what it was intended to do in the first place. We're going to tell you the story each week, but this journal that you can purchase has the scriptures, every chapter in it uh, here, and then also a place for notes. And so this will help you, if you want, in going through this journey in Esther to have the, the very scripture in front of you, uh, and then also a place to take notes to kind of journal your way through this. So three bucks in the bookstore if you want to grab one, and, uh, and we'd love for you to have that because I think it will be helpful. Well, what do I always do, always do, before I decide to preach God's word? I pray. So why don't you guys bow with me right now and let's ask God's blessing. Father, I do thank you for the church today. I know the church can be real up and down and have a lot of issues and what have you. We're all human. But Lord, there's times, lots of times, when it seems to work really right. And the reason is, as we're going to see, it's because you are the one who empowers us. You are the one who draws close to us. But Lord, as we're going to see as well today, there are times where that is seemingly not so. And there's times where even the distance is felt between us. And so we want to address that. As followers of your son, Jesus, filled with your Holy Spirit, there's a book in your word, God, that helps us journey through time 
times of divine distance. And Lord, we want to take that up. So bless this through the next few months in our church. May we be very glad that we came uh, here today and had this discussion very honestly about this idea of you when you are seemingly behind the scenes. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this is a good start for the series. I want you to think, you personally, of all the things that you do as a follower of God through Jesus to nurture and grow your walk with the Lord. In other words, what is it that you do each day or each week to nurture and keep your walk going and growing? Here would be a good list. Uh, You probably pray. Christians talk to God and he hears us and he even answers us. Prayer is an integral part of keeping our walk with God alive. And then we have the word. My guess is, is that you read the Bible, or at least you should, because in the Bible contains the very words of God and we grow in our understanding of him and even in our walk with him through his word. And then we have what we're doing today, worship where you gather together with other believers and you sing songs and you lift up your heart to him in worship and you connect with him that way. And then as we all know, we have fellowship, where, which is simply a fancy word for meeting with other Christians, whether in Bible study or small group or even just in your neighborhood with your Christian friends. And it's through that kind of iron sharpening iron, as the Bible says, that we grow in our walk with God. And then we serve. We serve others and get a sense of God's pleasure and approval. And then we even have circumstances. I hear this all the time by Christians. They point to their blessed life and they say, look what God has done for me. And we count our blessings one by one. We thank God for them and it's part of nurturing our walk with God. You see, this is just a sampling right here. Just six things that almost every Christian does to nurture his or her walk with God to keep it going and growing. Now, with that list in mind, here's my question. What do you do when one or more of these things begin to wane? Even more, and maybe this has happened to you, maybe it hasn't, it has to me. What do you do when each one of these things seems to dry up a bit and not deliver like they once did? What do you do when prayers seem dry and unanswered? What do you do when you don't seem to get much out of your quiet time or the word? What do you do when worship doesn't engender the feelings that it used to? Or when fellowship doesn't seem to deliver anymore? Or when serving becomes a labor and a drag? Or when blessings don't seem to flow? Are you with me, guys? What do you do when all the tried and true methods that you and I are told and taught to do on a regular basis to nurture our walk with the Lord, what do you do when they don't seem to be as true anymore? All the great spiritual writers have written about this. You need to know this. C.S. Lewis called it losing your first fervor. St. John of the Cross called it the dark night of the soul. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones called it spiritual depression. Larry Crabb calls it the Job experience. Call it what you will. They all mean the same thing. It's wilderness time. In your walk with the Lord, you're in the desert and all the things that seemingly quenched your thirst over the years might not quench it anymore. And the question is, what do you do? 
And just so you don't think that you're alone in this, the Bible actually chronicles quite a few people who struggled with this as well and their main characters in the Bible. Uh, David, if you read the Psalms, on numerous occasions would say this to God, why are you hiding your face from me? On numerous occasions. And though theologians bicker back and forth on whether God actually hid his face from him or not, that's not the point. The point is David was experiencing divine distance in his walk with God and he didn't mind shouting it from the rooftops so he could get an answer from God on it. Or how about this verse? Look at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. This is describing a period of time before King David. And it simply says, In those days, the word of the Lord was rare, and there were not many visions. <laughs> Imagine that, living through a time, a season in, in, in the history of the world where there wasn't much from God, there weren't a lot of visions. Uh, some of us can relate to that in our lives. Even Jesus, the incarnate son of God, cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And though there are various explanations as to why Jesus said this and what he meant by it, one thing that every answer agrees with, you ready for this, is that Jesus felt distant from the father at that time. That's inarguable because that's what he's saying. And my guess is, is that many of us could tell stories about when the well dries up, when we feel far from God, especially if you're a more mature Christian, and we really don't know what to do. And then comes along the Old Testament book of Esther. I told you earlier, and I meant it, gang, it's a very unique book. It's the 16th book in the Bible in the Old Testament. It's just a couple of books before the Psalms, and it's what Bible experts call an historical story, an historical story, because it's an historical account of something that Israel, God's people, went through, but it's told, and you gotta love this, in story form complete with action, drama, suspense, and even some life lessons to learn along the way. And as we're gonna see today, and in the coming weeks, the primary point of Esther, you ready for this? Is that sometimes God seems to take a back seat in our lives. In other words, he seems distant and inactive, while all the while he is up to something, and up to something rather life-changing and significant. And so to kick off this series on Esther, what I want to do in our time remaining today, we've got about 30 minutes before the communion table, is I want to share with you just a couple of things that will get us all on the same page as to what Esther is about and get us ready to plumb the depths of this book over the next few months, because that's what we're going to do. This is an introductory message today, but a very important one. It's going to rally all of us together around what Esther is about. So here Here's the first thing you need to know that will help you enter the storyline of this book. And I'll just warn you, a lot of Christians don't like this point. They resist it. They fight it. You might as well, but we're going to get through it because it's true. And it's this, that in a fallen world, there will be seasons of divine distance. It's true. Hang around God long enough. Stay in the ring with him long enough. And in a fallen world where the Bible says this world is not our home, you're battling the flesh, that you don't see very clearly, that's all biblical, there's going to be seasons of divine distance where we feel far from God. 
And let me tell you a little bit about the background and storyline of Esther, and I want to see if you can begin to catch on. This story takes place toward the tail end of the Old Testament, around 480 B.C., Israel has been around as a nation for more than a thousand years now, and though Israel had a rocky start initially, you can read about that in in, in the first four or five books of the Old Testament, they now firmly established themselves in the Holy Land, which is what modern day Israel is, and and they had built these tabernacles to worship God in, and then they had now one big temple in, in Jerusalem where the presence of God was experienced for Israel, and things seemingly were going great. But there was one main problem, and that is that the one thing, one thing that God told Israel never to do, which was to put other things before him, what the Bible calls idol worship, the nation did consistently. So he said to them, you and I will get along great as long as you keep me number one in your life and put nothing else before me. But Israel had this uncanny ability to put other things before God. And so as a result of this rebellion, God allows some more powerful nations to come in and take over Israel. So first you have the Assyrians in 722 BC, and then the Babylonians in about 585-90 BC, and then finally the Persians come in. And to add insult to injury, these nations don't just have a friendly takeover like a little merger. No, these nations actually deport about a million Israelites, God's people, away to other places. So they take over, they ransack, and they deport, exile Israel. And so I want you to look up here on the screen. This is important for us to kind of dial into this as to what is happening. I know this map looks confusing. It's not. Forget about the lines for right now on this map. This is a map of the modern-day Middle East and then some. So over here, you have Egypt down here uh, on, 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 on my, just keep it right there, guys. You have Egypt right here, and then up here, you have modern-day Turkey, and then the Baltic states, the old Soviet Union here, and then all the stands over here, and you're getting into China and India. And then right in the center of it, you have countries that all of you know about. You got Iraq and Iran right here. And then as you get over here, you have Jordan and Syria, and this red circle is Israel. You might have heard that Israel is a really small nation. And so this red circle is Israel here. Now, what are the other lines about? You can tell I drew them. Aren't I a good drawer? As I have studied the book of Esther, uh, the Persian Empire, 2,500 years ago at the time of Esther, the outline of the Persian Empire is this black line here. That's how massive and big the Persian Empire was in the time of Esther. It took over everything that you and I would call today in the modern Middle East and then some. And the reason that's important is because they also took over little Israel here. But if you look over here, this blue circle is Susa back then, the capital of Persia, where modern-day Iran is now. And what I simply need you to see is the distance between Israel, where the presence of God was, where their home was, where they met with God in the temple, where they were given the law, all the things that they had experienced God with, and now they were deported, at least Esther and her clan was, to Susa. In other words, they were geographically, physically far from where they had experienced God and even the presence of God in the Old Testament. 
And what you need to understand about the book of Esther, and this is really important, is it was not just a geographical distance that these exiles were experiencing, but also a spiritual distance in their lives. I'm not suggesting God wasn't with them. You're going to see that he is. But their experience of him, due to being exiles, was drying up fast. And that's going to be experienced as you and I read the book of Esther. And my simple point is, is that I think there are times that you and I have kind of the Esther effect in our lives even today. Uh, To hammer this home even more, I want to share with you four fast facts, really fast, about the book of Esther that will kind of blow you away. It's a very unique book in the Old Testament. Four fast facts about the book of Esther. Here's the first one. There are no references to God in the entire book. It's the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God. Aren't you glad that the other 65 books mention God? (laughs) Because it's the Bible. In the book of Esther, there's no reference to God or deity whatsoever. The people are that dry. To contrast that, the king that we're going to read about in Esther, the king of Persia, his name is Xerxes or Ahasuerus in the Hebrew. This king is mentioned 191 times in the 10 chapters of Esther. God's not mentioned once. Second fast fact is that there are no references to God's law or covenant in the entire book. So something that was central to Israel, something that the exiles would talk about all the time in Ezra and Nehemiah and all the post-exilic books, isn't mentioned even once in Esther. Third is that there are no direct references to prayer in this story. (laughs) I mean, think about it. Something that the rest of the Bible will mention thousands of times, something so core to our experience of God, prayer, is not mentioned at all in this story. And then lastly, is that concepts like kindness, mercy, and forgiveness, which are the building blocks of grace, receive no attention in Esther's story. Do you see? Not only is Israel in a literal far-off place when this book was written, literally far from the presence of God in the temple, but the whole book is written from a perspective that screams to us the distance that they felt from God, the spiritual remoteness that they were experiencing at that time. And the point is clear. You have to ask yourself, why did God include this in the Bible? Why are we to be interested in the book of Esther? Man, the answer is clear, guys. And that is that there are times in a fallen world, even lengthy seasons, when God will feel and even seem distant, remote, and inactive. And man, if you can't relate to that yet, I simply have one piece of advice for you. Hang on. Stay in the ring. Because I've not met a mature Christian yet who hasn't experienced seasons of divine distance in their lives. And some of you simply need to hear today because you feel so much shame about it and you want to deny it, that it's okay. God gets it. And he's included a provision in his word to help us navigate these times of divine distance. You know, when I was pastoring uh, back in uh, Cleveland uh, 12 years ago before I came here, I uh, have always been in some sort of men's group that I meet with that, you know, help me uh, in my own soul and in my own life. And, and for six years when I was pastoring in my hometown back in Cleveland, I met with the same group of men every week. And you just simply need to know they were very mature men. Half of them were elders. 
The other half had a stellar reputation in the community. They'd been Christians a long time. They were wonderful, wonderful men. And they helped me in my walk with God. They were peers, if you will, in my spiritual life. And as I got to know these guys and spent more time with them, uh, there were times where we shared about, you know, the wonderful marriages they had and how their kids were doing pretty good and, and how their businesses were growing and how they were loving, you know, their walk with God and all this. But then there'd be other times where they would use words like this in the six years that I was with them to describe their relationship with God. They would use words like distance, emptiness, silence, if I probe too much on how they're doing with God. It was an honest group of men that I met with, very mature. And when they were in those empty, silent distant places, sometimes even for a season, there was no hidden sin in their life. There was no active disobedience. Their kids were not going crazy. Their marriage was not on the rocks. Everything seemed to be copacetic on the outside. But in their soul, they were going through seasons of divine distance. Lauren Winner is the author of the popular book, Girl Meets God, and I like how she says it, this is good, this is an article she wrote years ago. She says, I for one am thankful that this book, Esther, that testifies to God's hiddenness is in sacred scripture. She says, the book of Esther, I think, asks us to sit in a space where God is hidden. I've been spending a lot of time with Esther and now I will tell you why. I have come to a place in my life where God seems hidden. It's not exactly a place of doubt. She says it's not exactly a spiritual dry spell. It's a place of God's removal somehow, or at least perceived removal. He doesn't seem to be right next to me. He doesn't seem to be speaking to me very loudly. And you might wonder why I am so interested in this book. Is it okay to be confessional from the pulpit? The reason is, is because there are too many times in my 40-year walk with God, gang, where I feel that distance as well. And I wrestle with whether it's perceived or not. I don't know, I have a lot of questions for God when my heart stops beating and I go to heaven, but I feel it in my spirit. One of my mentors is Larry Crabb. He's been a dear friend and a guy who's helped guide me in my spiritual life. And years ago during a prolonged season of dryness, I was sharing with him about that. And he actually made me feel good with his answer, but it also helped me explain a lot what's going on in my soul. He, he said, Jamie, do you have a thirst for God? I was like, boy, you have no idea. My favorite psalm is, as the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. I wake up every day and all I want is more of God. I really do. I can tell you that with everything in me. And he said, but yet you don't get that, do you? I said, no, I don't. I, I said, my thirst outpaces the quenching every day of my life. And he said, could that be the distance you feel? <laughs> I said, absolutely it is. That doesn't help at all, but that does help me at least understand. <laughs> what's going on in my life. And see, here's what he helped me understand that day is that it's not necessarily a bad thing. The Bible elevates thirst. Thirst is a good thing. But our experience is always, if you're doing it right, gonna lag behind your thirst. But that's gonna create times of incredible parchedness when it comes to your walk with God. 
People have resisted this idea of divine distance or at least the idea that there will be times when God feels very, very far away. They've resisted it for thousands of years ever since Esther was written. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this about the book of Esther. It's it's an exact quote. He said, I am so hostile to Esther that I could wish that it did not exist at all. (laughs) Guy just didn't like the book in the Bible. This is really a fun stat. Um, those of you who come from a Catholic background know that your Bible is thicker than our Bible. Have you ever noticed that? And that's because Catholics have a portion of their Bible called the Apocrypha. And to be fair, the Apocrypha wasn't added to the canon of Scripture till about 1000 AD. So it was well after you know the, our Bible was finished. But to be fair, the Apocrypha includes books that happened during what we call the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament. So they're legitimate books, they're historical books. It's just that we would not see them as part of the canon of Scripture because they didn't happen in the Old Testament or the New. They happened in that in-between time. But the Catholics include that as part of Scripture. But I've read the Apocrypha, and if you're interested in it, you should too, because it's really good history. And one of the funniest things about the Apocrypha is that if you read the book of Esther in a Catholic Bible, it's longer than the book of Esther in our Bible. And the reason is, is because Esther was written in about 450 BC, right at the time that this occurred. And in 100 BC, 350 years after the time of Esther came along, you got to love this, a scribe did not like the fact that this book does not mention God or prayer or the temple, or anything like that. So a scribe in 100 BC added 105 verses to Esther, and they jazzed it up spiritually. I mean, the book reads completely different. Now Esther reads like this. Esther's in this dry period, and then she says, oh God, I love you, and I need you, and it reads like the Psalms, and then it mentions God's, you know, the the law, and mercy, and all these things. In other words, you got to love Christians. Somebody came along and like Luther said, this thing isn't spiritual enough. We need to add to it. And here's my point. I think you and I do that all the time today in our spiritual lives. Amen. There are times when you are dry. And yet because Christians are so verbose and we talk such a big game and we usually talk much bigger than we're actually experiencing, what happens is is that you feel shame at the anemia of your spiritual life and you dare not want to admit it to anybody around you so that when they say, Joel, how's it going? You say, well, praise the Lord, I'm doing just fine. Where inwardly, Joel's saying, I've been in a dry period and I don't know when it's going to end. We add verses to the book of Esther. Here's what you need to know. God comes along and says, why don't you just read the book for what it is? Why don't you just spend some time as a church parked in front of this book for how I intended it to be read? And that is a book in which there's a very secular, dry part of Israel's life. But have no fear, I'm still there. That's what we're going to learn in the book of Esther. And for any of you that can relate, man, could this be a great journey for you. Now, at this point, the obvious question becomes, what do you do when you're in one of those faraway places from God? I mean, how are we to respond to this perceived 
or at times even real divine distance. And in our time remaining, I want to share with you one other introductory truth from Esther that we're going to be exploring in much detail throughout this series, but it's really important to note because it's the theme of Esther as well, and it's this. And that is, in order to navigate divine distance, you must trust in the providence of God. Let me repeat that. If you are ever going to not be a casualty to spiritual dryness, you have to learn to trust that he is still there, that he is still working in your life, and that he is what we're going to call providential in your life. What do I mean by this? I want to look at just one verse from the entire book of Esther today. It's hands down the central core verse of the entire book. It's Esther 4, verse 14. And before I read it for you, I wanted to share with you very quickly what's happening in Esther so you can understand this verse. As you and I have already established, it's about 480 BC, and Esther and her fellow Israelites, now this is important, are living in exile in Susa. So again, you saw where Israel was, where Susa was, and they're very far from their homeland. And through a very strange turn of events that we're going to explore next week and the following week, Esther, this Jewish exile, marries the king of Persia and becomes the queen. And things look good. But then, soon after marrying him, a Hitler-like plot is, is hatched by a very bad and evil person named Haman to now exterminate all the Jews from the face of the earth. Man, it happened at the time of, of, of World War II, and it happened in the Old Testament. And, and the only hope that they have is to try to get the king on the side of the Jews, and Esther is now the queen, but not so fast. Because in that crazy culture that we're going to explore next week, it's actually going to be a really fun exploration, the queen, nobody could actually approach the king and ask for anything. And if you did, you'd be killed. Talk about a crazy misogynistic culture. That's what it was back then. And so when Mordecai, Esther's cousin, said to Esther, hey, you got to approach the king and tell him about this plot. Esther said, if I do, I'll be killed. That won't help us at all. So I don't know what to do. And she said, I basically can't help you. And then Mordecai says these famous words to Esther. Esther 4, verse 14, tells us the whole theme of this book. Mordecai says, for if you remain silent, Esther, at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Oh, you gotta love Mordecai. He doesn't bring God into the equations. That's why we're calling this series God Behind the Scenes. Because when you look closely, Mordecai, being a good Jew, has lots of good theology in this that is right to our second point here. He says to Esther, don't remain silent, because if you do, God, who is behind the scenes, will bring relief and deliverance for his people. Because he never gives up on his people. And who knows, Esther, whether or not you have been raised up as queen to be a part of his plan, his providential plan to save Israel at this time. That's essentially what Mordecai is saying to Esther. He's saying to her, I know things are dark. I know we feel far from God. I know we don't even see his movement much. But right now we need to trust. We need to dig deep and realize that he is still there and that we can trust in his providence in our lives right now. In a very real way, Mordecai is saying that when you have that rope of faith that you hang on to in life, you're at the end of it right now. 
And that you need to tie a knot, Esther, at the end of that rope and hang on for dear life. And that knot represents the providence of God. That he is still with you. That he has not given up on you. And that you need to trust him. That he's going to come through for his people. You know, Christians throw around a lot of $10 words. You guys have noticed that. We use words like sovereignty and providence to describe God. Uh, Let me just very quickly tell you the difference between sovereignty and providence. Because it's really important. When we say that God is sovereign, that's an old English word that simply means supreme ruler. So the king in England years ago was the sovereign. He was the one who looked over his entire land and said, I am the ruler of this entire land. So when we say God is sovereign, all we simply mean is that God has taken a step back, if you will, looked at the entire universe and said, I'm the supreme ruler of all of this. And by the way, that's true about God. However, When we then say he is providential, watch this. We're basically saying God is no longer standing back. God has now stepped into his creation and he is controlling everything. He has a purpose for everything. He has a plan for everything. He is providential. He will bring to fruition that which he has determined and nothing can stop it. And maybe now you can see why it's so important that we trust in the providence of God during times of dryness because it's our best friend to realize that even though the quiet time's not delivering anymore, even though prayers seem to go unanswered, even though worship doesn't give us the feelings anymore, even though service is a drag, go on and on, we can still have incredible faith in the Lord Because we realize, as the psalmist says, that this too shall pass. Though there's weeping in the night, there is joy in the morning. And hang on for dear life. Don't get out of the ring. Trust in him. And therein lies the greatest challenge to you and I today as Christians. The greatest danger you and I have in times of divine dryness, call it. The greatest challenge we have is to actually tie a knot at the end of our rope and hang on and trust him anyways. Because here's how many Christians tend to respond or think. Instead of trusting, we withdraw. Have you ever noticed that? Just like a marriage. You know, if your marriage is on the rocks and your partner isn't delivering for you, you don't usually say, well, gee, I think I'll just love them anyways. No, what you tend to do is say, well, I think I'll return the favor. And if you're not going to talk to me, I'm not going to talk to you. If you're not going to respond loving to me, I'm not going to respond lovingly to you. That's what gets a lot of us in trouble in our marriage. And yet the problem is we do the same with God. God seems to not be speaking. He seems to not be coming through. And we say, I think I'll return the favor. And I'm going to shut down on him. Lots of Christians do that. And then here's the second dangerous thing is that we then do our own thing. Because now we've created distance between us and God and we no longer get the relief of answered prayer and worship and fellowship that seems to deliver and all those things. And so here's what we do, and this is so dangerous. We then go to drink or money or food or lust and sexuality. And it's not because we are overly needy or thirsty or hungry or sex starved. It's because we feel empty. And we try to use those things to fill up the emptiness in our soul that only God can fill. And our mindset is basically this. Well, if God's not going to fill it, I will. 
If God's not going to deliver for me, I got to find relief somewhere. And so I'm going to find it out there. And before you know it, you've withdrawn from God. Now you're trying to find relief anywhere that you can. And all the while, you're not trusting at all in his providence. Now, I think one of the tallest orders for a follower of the Lord today, honestly, is to be able to be in those dry times and to say, I'm going to trust him anyway, no matter what. That's what the book of Esther is going to teach us. I want to close with a story, a very real story. It's not mine. It's Larry's, my friend Larry's. But it's a profound story that's moved me for years. Uh, when Larry Crabb was a younger man, his, his dad was still alive. His dad since passed on. And uh, at one point, his dad, who was a very, very strong, quiet Christian man, raised in the Plymouth Brethren background, uh, was in the hospital. And he was in the hospital for about two weeks, suffering from some rather significant ailment. And uh, at one point, he was being released from the hospital, and Larry went to pick up his dad. And so he picked up his dad, and he put him in the back seat and, and uh, started driving him home. And at one point, Larry says he looked in the rearview mirror, and his dad was crying in the back seat there. And, and, and he said, you know, Dad, what, what's going on? And his dad said to Larry from the back seat, he said, you know, uh, when I was in the hospital there, I was very lonely, I was very hurting, and, and every day I, I would cry out to God. Every day I'd cry out for a, a sense of his presence or something from the word or, or just something. Just let me know, God, that you're there. And he said, and every day that prayer went unanswered. And today you picked me up. And for two weeks I was in the hospital and I received nothing from God. And Larry thought, well, I guess that would bring any godly man to tears and that must be what he's crying about. And then his dad, without Larry saying anything, said this to him. And he said, and son, what moves me so much, where the tear is coming from, is that I'm just blown away that God would trust me that much to know that I would remain faithful even in the absence of his perceived presence. And his dad started crying even more and said to think that God trusts me that much to be faithful to him tells me how good he really is. See, that's a mature Christian. That's a man who understands how to navigate divine distance. Some of you are saying right now, well, I don't know if I have that in me. If you're a believer in Jesus here today and you have the Holy Spirit living in you, I want to promise you one thing before you go. You have it in you because you have him in you. And that's what we're going to explore in this series we're going to take a look at a bunch of themes that Esther gives us that aren't going to just reiterate providence, though that's a huge theme here. We're going to look at a bunch of themes in this series that talk about things that you and I can do in times of dryness to bolster our trust in providence. And they're not going to be, like, don't you always love it? Christians always say, well, just read the Bible more and just pray more and just serve more and just give more. Esther's going to mention none of that. Again, it doesn't talk about those things. <laughs> Esther's going to bring up some other things that you and I can latch on to, things that I discovered even uh, last February on my study break where I go, ooh, ooh, that works. Ooh, ooh, that's good. I like that one. And these are things that can breathe life to our soul in times of divine distance. And so if you're there at all, or if you know of somebody that's there at all, or if you're waiting to get there because you will, this is going to be a very relevant series for you. It's going to be a good journey to go through Esther. 
as we explore how to finally, you ready for this? Get to Christianity 401 in our lives. This is not for the faint-hearted. This is for those of us who mean business in our walk with God and in our rough and tumble culture and our rough and tumble world are ready to dig deep and become the men and women that God wants us to be. That's the journey we're going on. I'm glad that you're with us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this amazing book in your word that has confused some over the years, but I don't think it will confuse us. God, I pray that as we go through this book that you would meet each and every one of us in our journals, in our prayers, in our worship. Just meet us, God, and remind us that even though we might go through times of darkness or times of lapsed energy, whatever it might be for us, that God, your grace, your activity, your involvement, your providence has never faltered and never will. And so, Lord, may we trust in that. May we learn how to do that in even deeper ways in the coming weeks. Thank you, Lord, that you love us. Thank you that you're constantly, constantly working in our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.